our emotional well-being, our mental health is deeply connected to our physical health. It actually impacts our physical health. We've treated them for years as though they're separate entities. And really, we need to be thinking about human beings as integrated wholes. That's our guest today, Momentus Institute, a unique school in Dallas that focuses on early mental health intervention for children and their families experiencing trauma. Here, social-emotional health is part of a child's everyday curriculum, and children are taught mindfulness and about their brains. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more on today's show, check out our show notes and visit our healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. We invite you to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode goes live. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Hello. And welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Bryce Bach, Principal in the Health and Life Sciences Practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, I'm joined by two women from the Momentus Institute, Jess Trudeau, Executive Director, and Dr. Laura Vogel, Director of Therapeutic Services. Founded by the Salesmanship Club of Dallas in 1920, Momentus Institute works side-by-side with children, families, and communities to build and repair social emotional health through education, therapeutic services, research, and training, so all children can achieve their full potential. Hi, Jess and Laura. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi, Bryce. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on today. We work to build social emotional health through programming in mental health education, training, and research. And we see profound impact of the services on individuals and at the community level. We provide services to more than 5,500 children and family members on an annual basis. We have expertise in working with families who've experienced trauma. We take everything that we learn and have learned from decades of work in mental health and apply it uh, in an academic setting. So we have a lab school in Oak Cliff that serves children three years old through fifth grade with a dual focus on building social-emotional health on par with rigorous academics. So when you think of the translation from the mental health world, it's how do we provide services and education to the whole child and ensure their social and emotional well-being as a way to support them in achieving academic success. And we conduct a significant amount of short-term and long-term research on this effort. What we're finding is students are with us through fifth grade and then they launch and go into more than 60 different middle and high schools, but yet seven years later, 96% of alumni are graduating high school on time, 81% are enrolling in college, and 84% of those are persisting into their second year. And it's our belief and was our hypothesis at the beginning when launching the school in 1997 
that if you start young and have a focus on building social emotional health, that you can equip students and families with the skills and capacity to pave their own way and to achieve their full potential. So I'm fascinated to learn more about the science that you all are working on. When people experience trauma at a young age, what exactly happens to their brains? What kinds of mental health interventions and daily practices ensure that children have strong emotional well-being once they mature into adulthood? Sure. Um, When we begin to think about the impact of trauma on us throughout our life cycle. As adults, it's one thing, but when we as young children who have brains that are changing and developing are experiencing stressful events, and when we think about trauma, we, you know, think about both big T trauma, so what everyone might consider a traumatic event, something like a house fire or an abusive situation. But little t traumas could be those everyday stressors that can come when we're raising a family in poverty or in a neighborhood with a lot of crime or we're making frequent moves. And so those are stressful life events that over time can have the same impact on the brain as those big t traumas. Really, when we talk to kids and families about the brain and neuroscience, We're talking about three core areas of the brain, and certainly this is an oversimplification, but it's something that both kids and families can easily hold on to, understand. So when we think about the uh, amygdala, which is part of the middle part of the brain, the limbic system, we think about the cerebral cortex, which is that thinking part of the brain, the part that we really hope we have access to during school, you know, that allows us to think, plan, integrate. And then we talk to kids about their hippocampus. That is that part of the brain that stores memories, stores information, and then allows us to retrieve it and use it. Um, throughout life, but certainly academically. And so when we are young and we're experiencing this chronic stress or traumatic experiences, different chemicals are being released, cortisol being the main one we think about. That then begins to impact lower regions of the brain. And that mid part of the brain, the amygdala, the limbic system, become impacted. And then when lower regions of the brain are impacted, then higher regions like the cerebral cortex aren't as efficient. And so we can find that um, children who have experienced chronic trauma may stay in this state where the middle part of their brain is in either a fight, flight, or freeze mode. And that's really what the purpose of the amygdala is, is that when we have a danger cue come in, we need to respond and we don't need to think through all the multiple steps we need to react. But when that happens repeatedly, what can then happen to the brain is that part becomes hypersensitive or overreactive. And so then when I'm no longer in that traumatic or stressful environment, but I'm at school or I'm on the playground and something happens, we see young children often overreact to those situations and it's the brain sort of taking over and it reads it as a danger cue even when it may not be. So that's really what we're trying to help both 
kids, but especially the adults who work with them, begin to understand is that the behaviors that can often be the most worrisome or the focus of a lot of attention for a teacher may be much more complex than we originally think. That's so interesting. You're talking about concepts that I'm not sure all of us as adults really understand. And, um, but you're teaching you know, even the children that you work with about this biology at a very young age. And you find that understanding you know, these concepts about the hippocampus and the different parts of the brain really help them understand their behavior and, and respond more productively. Yes, definitely, both for the adults that work with them as well as the kids. And so first we have to have the adults understand it and to be able to step back and say, okay, what's happening right here? This child has had a really big response and I'm not sure I understand it, but I know the context. I know what their history is or I know that this has been an experience. They've had experiences that may have been traumatic. So how do I understand if, you know, this child's just yelled at me or if this child's just thrown something across the room? Is that really just pure defiance or is that child's behavior telling me they need something? And usually that's telling me I'm afraid, I'm overwhelmed, and I'm just trying to protect myself. When I view behavior that way, I'm much more likely to problem solve and come up with an intervention that's actually helpful. But if I view it as defiance or disrespect or something like that, I'm typically only going to respond to the behavior in a corrective way, sometimes in a punitive way, and that doesn't necessarily change that behavior for the child. It just may change it short term because there's a punishment or a consequence, but it doesn't change it long term if we don't understand the why behind the behavior. The same thing for kids, if we're able to help them slow down and talk to them about your body's having a really big feeling right now and your brain is, you know, flooded with emotions right now. Let's do some things that help our brains calm down, help our brains, you know, feel settled they are much more likely to respond to that than you need to calm down or you need to settle down because it becomes much more personal and it feels more like I'm being attacked or criticized versus, okay, it's my brain. Let's all do something together about helping my brain. It allows a child to take a step back and look at it a little bit more objectively. And of course, you know, developmentally, we're talking to a three-year-old differently than a fifth grader but we're working toward that continuum. Even just the language you use there when you describe the way you teach the children these concepts and using words like you're having a big feeling and help your body settle. Certainly, you know, and and in some ways we are helping support each other to be the best adults we can be in the room with children. And nobody's perfect and there are times when we aren't the best adults we can be, but if we're same thing with adults, if we're looking at it like, what about this behavior or what about this interaction triggered your brain to respond? An adult can also look at that situation in a much different way than if it's like you should have done X, Y, and Z and you didn't. And it's very critical. So it, it works both ways, certainly, to think about just our neurology and that we're all in this space and we're all working toward trying to have a little more agency over that 
over our bodies and how we respond. And the end strategy is to really empower these children to make more productive choices and, and feel more control you know, over their day-to-day lives. Yes. They can chart a different trajectory. Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that as we view this behavior through this lens that there isn't consequences or things that get connected to some of the decisions, but it's how we talk about the process. So it's not a shameful process, but it's a learning process because ultimately that's what consequences are about. It's to teach us something so that the next time we're trying a little bit harder to do it differently. Punishment typically doesn't teach us anything. And so it's not that we just allow for big behaviors to occur without some sort of support and correction, but it's the goal about how we're correcting and with that end game of we're trying to teach a skill. And this child still has a skill that has not yet been developed, and that's our end game. I'm very curious to hear, you know, as you've gone through this process and, you know, building the school and becoming more embedded in the community, what have you learned along the way? What what has surprised you or some of the ahas? You know, when we think about, so providing services in the school, we also provide services to other individuals in the Dallas-Fort Worth community. And so there's sort of two ways in which we're trying to connect with children and families directly. You know, when we think about the broader community, even outside of the school, we have had a center where people come to us and seek mental health services. It looks very similar to a lot of clinics across the country. But when we start to think about going into the community and providing mental health services, especially with communities that may not have had access to that, it is a very slow process. And I think that's one of the things that surprised us the most is we really have to slow down and do a whole lot of listening before we can do very much intervening. And so we can't just show up and say, here we are, we've got mental health services for you all, everybody come and let's do therapy together. That's for communities that have not had access to mental health services, most of the members of that community don't know anyone who's ever utilized mental health services. And that begins to add to that stigma that's connected to mental health. If I don't know anyone who's ever done this, then it becomes this big mysterious thing. And we have to be really thoughtful to do a lot of listening. We've had to take a step back and actually free up one of our therapists to just become integrated into the various communities that we're trying to connect with. And that might mean attending community meetings, it might mean attending Bible studies, but it it doesn't mean just showing up, being in an office and thinking that folks are gonna access the service when they don't yet trust us or don't yet know who we are, what we're about. And the amount of time we've needed to take and how slow we've needed to go to build that trust Because you think about a lot of communities that are underserved, we often can get into that space where folks will come in and want to be helpful and then they leave. And for communities to see that you're not going to leave, that you're going to stay and you're going to be a part of what we're doing, you're going to really value our voice, that takes time to build up. I can see how that trust is, is just so critical and it requires taking a certain approach in order to achieve that, listening, being open to other ideas. 
And did you find that you're actually modifying your approach and the way you know you engaged or delivered services even uh, based on what you heard? You know, with communities that have endured, you know, particularly quite a bit of racism or systemic racism, there's a, a pretty significant need to, to tell their story. And so lots of listening. And it may not be yet, okay, let's, let's look at goals for what you're going to change. Not jumping in that quickly, because just by virtue of telling their story and having people listen and accept it as real and accept it as truth, those sorts of things become powerful interventions. But that looks slightly different than it might when folks are coming to us and here's my problem, here's what I want to fix, here's my goal, let's work on my goal, and let's move through services quickly. That's one of the things I think we've not changed, but again, it's that slowing down of the process. That word powerful really sticks out. I can feel that as you tell that story. And you're achieving different outcomes as a result of that, aren't you? We're both with the children at school as well as the families we're serving through our outpatient services. You know, certainly as we think about the children in the school, we privilege social-emotional health at the same level as we do academics, and then we follow them long-term. And children leave us after fifth grade. And so we see that the skills they're developing here with us are sustaining and helping them as they go into a variety of different middle schools, high schools, and then persisting on into college. Let's talk a bit about the support you offer to your colleagues as well. It, it can't be an easy job uh, working with this population day in and day out. And they develop such substantial relationships and, and really it seems in many ways go through a shared experience with these families and children. And it seems your teachers would also need certain soft skills like empathy and cultural fit working in this field. What do you look for when you hire someone, especially if someone comes in from, say, a more traditional school setting or more traditional mental health office background? I'm very curious to hear more about the support that you offer to your colleagues, the soft skills like empathy and cultural fit you're looking for when you hire someone and uh, as you're helping to develop them into your program. Pretty different model from the traditional settings of you know, teaching in a traditional school or a traditional mental health office. I'm going to pass the mic to Jess and let her answer. So we are asking a lot from our teachers. Our full school year is longer than most school years. There's only one month off during the summer. Additionally, we're asking our teachers to implement both curricula that support academic achievement and a separate social emotional health curriculum. I always say you can implement a social emotional health curriculum while yelling and we're not going to have the results that we want to see. So, so much of this is how are we equipping professionals to enter the classroom and be able to build safe relationships with students and maintain their social emotional health and well-being as adults in the classroom while supporting children in acquiring those skills. Because this is a significant amount to ask, 
And because it requires a substantial amount of professional development, we find that teachers that have experienced at least three years of teaching in um, an urban public education system oftentimes have had enough experience of trying teaching with a more traditional approach and see the need for an alternative approach. So our teachers are, most of our new teachers are entering into classrooms where there is the most trauma and their teacher preparation programs are not equipping them with the skills and strategies to help support those students. So they have now experienced that gap and are open to sort of new ways of teaching students. I can feel the pressure that these teachers and professionals are under as they juggle multiple curriculums. They're coming up the curve. And, you know, they're in rooms where it's not one or two children that are facing challenging situations, but really trying to manage an entire room of children who may have you know, a variety of circumstances and external factors playing on them that day. And it takes a pretty special skill set that you help develop. Yeah. And we have an opportunity to select the right people to fill those roles. And I will tell you, our teachers, the clinicians that work here, all of our staff love this work. We believe it's possible to shift the way we think about education so that we can raise up this population of children and adolescents in our community and support them to achieve their full potential and not settle along the way. I love that. One of the things that stuck out to me as well when you're describing your organization at the introduction was it's pretty clear that research and innovation is central to what you do. And and in healthcare, there's constant pressure for performance and there's, you know, innovation teaming out of every sector, it seems. And and many are really struggling to think through how do you do it systematically? How do you engage and foster that innovation at the front lines, you know, while kind of setting some boundaries and driving consistency to get the right impact and outcomes? And I'm curious, how do you juggle that? So from a research perspective, we have a balance of, you know, looking at program evaluation to efficacy studies that we're publishing. And we see the value of the full continuum of looking at are our programs and services effective, scalable, cost effective, um, and are we working towards a product that can lead to population level impact. In order to do that, and in order to have the aha moments of cracking codes, we have found that you have to accept failure along the way. And so we say often that this is a space, this is an organization where it's safe to fail as long as we're learning the lessons that come with failing so that we can further improve and further develop services, further develop innovative strategies to engage in outreach, ultimately achieve greater impact. You know, so we are an organization that wants to ensure that all children 
can, can build and repair social emotional health. And so we have an opportunity to be socially emotionally healthy in those conversations. And so it's when something has not gone the way we'd like it to go to really be able to release being defensive and to dig into, okay, where are the opportunities for learning and how does that get applied at a systems level? And we live that, you know, we have specific committees and meetings that look at our program evaluation and efficacy studies. And at every meeting, we are reporting on, on a goal that we have far surpassed and a goal that we didn't hit. And we have an opportunity to make a pivot so that we can have improved services for our clients. Missteps are going to happen. Failures are going to happen. That's the price of progress. We're all on the same journey together. We're all going to learn together. And so you you respond in a certain way then accordingly when failures do happen and you move forward off of it. That's just, just wonderful. It is a parallel process all the way through from me as executive director through end to, through the client. The way we interact with one another will mirror across every relationship. And so it also starts with, I will say, me as a leader in our executive team, being able to say, I personally made a mistake. Showing that vulnerability. Yeah, that it's safe. I'm not going to get everything right all the time, but I am going to seek to learn and grow as a professional. And I think having that spirit of vulnerability and leadership then allows everyone else to feel safe to come forward and say, this worked and this didn't, and this is what we can learn. It's amazing you do that, bring such a human approach with the rigor and the data that you described around you know, the way you innovate uh, and drive progress. And sometimes there are missteps, but as you said as well, you overshoot your goals as well. Behavior change is not easy period, hard stop. And so um, if we are utilizing this perspective where we're working with the community and understanding that um, in what, what we're hoping to partner with families to help shift will take time, why would we think as professionals we will shift immediately? <laughs> so the same principles of human behavior change that apply to interventions also apply to staff and management and policies and protocol at the organizational level. Certainly going to take that home and, and think about you know, how I engage with my team. Well, thank you, Jess and Laura. I, I feel like I've learned quite a bit today. I really appreciate you joining us on the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring guests like Comcast, Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.